Good morning, once again. Welcome all of you who are visiting, uh, joining us this morning. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, I know it's been a couple of weeks. I'll give you a second to get there in Acts 24. Let's pray one more time as we open up the scriptures. Um, Father, you've heard our prayer. You've heard all that's been sung. Glory be to your name. And all I ask, Father, is you be the one with the one who speaks. I'm very cognizant, and all of us are, not just me, but all of us. Your people are cognizant, mindful that, Lord, we are the people that we just read about in our consecutive reading. We are the ones with filthy hearts. But thank you, Jesus, that you gave us pure hearts through the blood of Jesus, through your own blood, through your sacrifice on the cross. That you don't view us as filthy anymore. You view us as righteous in Jesus. Amen. And for that, Lord, we, we can sing forever. And we will one day. But until then, Lord, help us to apply your word now to our hearts. Help me to preach your word to, our, to the heart of your people. Help me to reach their heart through the power of your Holy Spirit. Because I, I have no words with that kind of power. Only your Holy Spirit can do that work. And anyone here that doesn't know you, Father, anyone that that has just been struggling, that has questions. Father, I pray that those questions would be, would be answered here this morning. That they would walk out of here, changed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, by trusting Him, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us, as we go into Acts 24, you know, earlier this year, we had a very... Famous, I guess, court case. Most of you probably heard of it. It's probably out of your mind now. At the beginning of the year, you probably remember the whole Johnny Depp and Amber Heard court case. I mean, it was just all over social media, snippets. Everywhere you looked, it was, it was there. You know, and it, you, you look at these court cases, sometimes you're just like, are we really dealing with this? Are we, am I really watching what I'm watching? Am I witnessing what I'm witnessing? But yes, those, those court cases exist. Now, that, I would say is not a court case that would probably be studying in some law course. Okay? There are landmark legal cases that have impacted our country. Right? Some of us are familiar with them. I can just mention uh, a few. Brown versus the Board of Education. Addressing racial segregation. Right? First step into the direction of ending that. You have cases like Roe v. Wade. You have you know, Roe v. Wade, you know, most of you are familiar with abortion, right? Now being addressed again. It seems to be the topic of every political election run. And then you have Miranda versus Arizona. You guys know Miranda, right? This is where you get the Miranda rights from. Now all of a sudden, that anything you say cannot be held against you, right? That you, they have to first tell you you have a right to an attorney. You have someone to represent you. You have that right. So if you want to keep silent, you can. So you have these... These cases that are landmark and actually do get studied in a legal course. If you're taking a criminal justice, you've probably dealt with these, with these courses. And I mention them because in any court case that we see, all we want to know is the truth. And once the truth is out there, will justice be rendered? That's what we want to know. Truth and justice. Give me the truth. 
And then you hope that the jury and the, and the judge will act justly, based on what the evidence they have heard or they've witnessed, etc. And so, spiritually speaking now, we have probably, we've, we've heard about probably the most important court case, right? Jesus before Pontius Pilate. There is Jesus before him explaining what is truth. Pontius Pilate completely oblivious to the fact that the very one that is standing in front of him in that moment is the embodiment of truth. Right? That was Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? I am the truth. In other words, Pontius Pilate was looking at truth dead in the face. So that we have that court case that happened. We know how that ended with Christ going to the cross. But probably, in my opinion, the second after that, the most important case is what we're seeing now. In Acts, we've been seeing Paul going, being arrested in Jerusalem, and now working his way, his case being escalated up. First it started with, with the Jews, because the Sanhedrin, right, the chief priest, and now it's working its way up. And now he finds himself before Felix in Acts 24. And so I mentioned that because we're going to be seeing here this case, and again, all we want to know is truth and justice. If truth is, be, is being expounded, it's being shown, it's being proven, right? If there's the evidence that this is what's true, then will the person that's listening on the other end act justly? That's what we want to know, and that's what we hopefully we see. So um, as we get into the scriptures, I'll read it now in a second, but notice a couple of things. The first nine verses we're going to see Paul's case and his character. Paul's case and his character. First nine verses. Then verses 10 through 21, we're going to see Paul's defense. Verses 10 through 21, Paul's defense. Then the third one, which the third point, which is Felix's injustice. Verses 20, um, 22 all the way to 27. Okay? So let us read there. If you follow me, Acts 24 should have it open there. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. And this is what the text reads. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesperson, a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we know Excuse me, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the, of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Basically saying, Felix, this is true. Verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not 
more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in their temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards, God, towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they thought to be here, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And this is a reading of God's Word. Um, so, first point. First, see in the, in the first nine verses, this Paul's case, Paul's character being addressed. Now, it's funny, the Jews bring out a heavy hitter. One by the name of Tertullus, probably Tertius, uh, a Roman uh, who most probably was very familiar with Roman law. And this is the one that they used to be his spokesperson. You read it in the text, it says spokesperson, right? And what is that spokesperson? It means that it was someone that was very familiar with rhetoric. What is rhetoric? If you've ever taken a philosophy course or a course in logic, and rhetoric is the next step after you learn the 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 logic as, as a whole, you know, and how to make uh, uh, suppositions and, uh, and proper, excuse me, uh, um, I forgot the word. Anyway, uh, the, the whole point is that you, here you are making this argument, right? And part of, once you have your argument formulated, your heart now is to go ahead and persuade the person that you're arguing, right? That, that you're making your argument before. You want to go ahead and show some rhetoric. You want to be persuasive. You want them to go ahead and say, you know what? I, I agree with you. I never thought about that, but I agree with you. And so that is exactly what Tertullus is doing. Tertullus is actually bringing very persuasively his case, or the Jews' case, before Felix on Paul. 
And he uses this very interesting dynamic, or not dynamic, but this thing called Captatio Benevolentiae, which is, he's in essence sucking up to Felix. He's basically saying, oh, most excellent Felix, look how, look, look how he starts, right? He says, most excellent Felix, look at everything you've done for this nation. I mean, we're so thankful to you. And, and so he's basically getting Felix to side with him. And that is exactly what he, what he, what he's, uh, uh, the technique that he's using to get Felix on his side. Now, as he presents his case, there's three things that he wishes that, to appeal to Felix. And it's the fact that in verse 5 and 6, we see three accusations that the Jews are making. One, this idea of sedition, of insurrection, right? That Paul has been kind of gathering people, causing a riot uh, among the Jews. Then he's also accused of being a ringleader of the Nazarenes. And finally, profaning the temple in verse 6. As, as, as he states these things, notice the way he phrases them. It's to put Paul in the worst light. In the worst light possible. Who here is, I mean, this guy is into insurrection. He's a rioter. He's the one that's stirring up everything. And so the Jews, of course, they're the victims. Paul is the one that's guilty. The Jews are the plaintiffs. We're bringing our charge. He has to defend himself. And notice how Tertullus describes Paul's character. He describes him as a plague. A plague. What do you do with plagues? You've got to eradicate it, right? You've got to take it out. You don't want a plague festering among the, the people, right? Because it could have the possibility of doing damage. So you have to do damage control. You've got you to get it out. And that's exactly what the Jews were hoping to do. To get Paul removed from the equation. We've got to get him out of the picture. And so, part of the application here is like, well, what, what do I get from this? How do I apply this to my life? Well, guess what? Number one, you're not alone. Worst things were said of Jesus. Right? What things were said of Jesus? Think about those. I mean, he was sitting with sinners, wasn't he? He was a blasphemer, calling himself God. That's a no-no for the Jewish culture. And that's exactly who Jesus was. He was called worse things. And so for us, remember that your Savior is called those things. And us too, we will, our characters will be maligned. And many times, someone will say something of you at work. Look at that guy, Edwin. Too pious for me. Sorry, not that. But those are the, the kind of things, not that he is, but in the sense of this is exactly what people are saying. Or people are going to go ahead and say, yeah, but I saw Troy. See what he's been doing? Freddie? They say one thing and then immediately, right? What's the argument? Oh, the hypocrites. Those are the Christian hypocrites. They say one thing and do the other. What they don't know is that we repent. What they don't understand is that, yes, we, we, don't, we don't call ourselves perfect. What we say is that we believe in a perfect Savior. And because we believe in a perfect Savior, because of whatever they may say of us, it's okay. If I... If I Mistreated you, forgive me. I apologize. I f Please forgive me. And we move on. But we have to always keep in mind that this is where we live. You and I do not live in a bubble. People are watching. People are watching what you say. People are watching what you do. And so we need to be careful of what we do. Now, we can do as much as we can to be righteous and, and, and to act according to our conscience before God. 
And people will still find a reason to, mis- to malign your character. And that's okay. We have to remember, Hebrews 12, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Keep your eyes on your Savior. That's all you can do. You can't worry about what everyone's going to say and speak about you. But what you can do is keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep focused on Him. And so, then we remember what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2. Right? Keep your conduct. How do you keep your conduct among the Gentiles? Honorable. So that when they call you evildoers, right? When they call you evildoers, they can go ahead and glorify God because of your good deeds on the day of visitation. That's part of what we have to remember. People will call you evildoers. But there's a day of visitation coming. And our heart is to always honor the Lord in our hearts first and foremost. And that's the, that's the first point. So Paul's case, Paul's character. He's being upright, he's being accused, character being maligned. But now he gets into his defense. And this is really the apologetic that we see, which is why I tell this is a Christian apologetic. This is really what it is. Paul is giving a defense for his faith. I wish I could phrase it another way, but he's literally applying that in his life. And Paul, by the way, is not unfamiliar with rhetoric. Paul knows rhetoric. How many times have we read in Scripture that Paul was persuasive in the temple? Paul, when he was dialoguing with the Jews, he was persuasive. He was winning them. Paul knows rhetoric. You want to you play that game? I can play it too. And he, and he kind of starts, hey, I'm going to go ahead and make my defense here. But what's interesting is that you know how he makes his defense? Mind you, he's in prison. He's not free and under, uh, what is it, um, home, um, what's the word? House arrest, thank you. Sorry, I've never been arrested. So. But I, I don't know, uh, but the point is, it's, it's, that, it's that, right? It's, it's, it's the house arrest. He's not, because when we see them, it's like, oh, this person, oh, how, how fortunate they are under house arrest. You know, they're, they're just at home and they're not really in prison suffering with the real criminals. That's not Paul's case. Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison. And how does he make his defense? Luke writes, he does it cheerfully. Cheerfully. Beloved, I cannot for one second say that if I am there, I'm making my defense cheerfully. All I can guarantee you right now, all I will be seeing is injustice. This is not fair. I haven't done anything wrong, and you know that. My heart would have been bitter. And yet Paul is making a defense cheerfully. You can't deny the fact that that's Paul's heart. Now, you might say, yeah, but it's Paul. Paul was just a sinner like all of us. Paul dealt with his emotions just like any one of us. Paul, there were moments when Paul got angry. But he did it cheerfully. And it shouldn't surprise us because this is not the first time that Paul is in prison cheerfully. Guys, remember back in Acts 16 when Paul was in prison with Silas? What was he doing? Singing hymns. So much so that the Philippian jailer gets converted. So Paul is not just one, this one, oh, but that, Acts 16, that was just a one-off thing. No, this is Paul's true character. He is honoring the Lord. He is honoring the Lord. And in his heart, he's doing my, I'm doing my defense, regardless of the outcome. I'm going to make my defense cheerfully. That's all I can do. 
You make of it what you want, Felix. But I'm going to go ahead and make it. And James 2 comes into play here. Because James 2 tells us, count it all what? All joy. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to get into it and break it down because our brother Dayron will be getting into that next week. But that's in essence what we're seeing here an example of. It's that heart that I can do so joyfully. I'm going to present my case to you smiling, Felix, because the the outcome is not up to me. The outcome is up to the Lord. But all I can do is just tell you the truth. Paul denies his first charge. And intelligently, he, he says, you know what? The ball's not in my court. The ball's on their court. He puts the ball right back in their court. He says, the Jews have to prove this, not me. The onus is on them. I haven't done anything. Let them show that proof. Let the others that would claim the same thing, they should be here as well. That is where Paul is actually um, denying that. So that's his first one. That insurrection doesn't hold because that's not the case. But then he gets into this, this confession. Notice the confession that he gives in 14a. What does he actually say in, um, in 14a? He actually says this, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, that's verse 15. But that first verse, he says, the way. This is not the first time that we see Paul talking about the way. He said it before. He says, they're accusing me of following the way, the way. What's this way? The, The way he's referring to is Jesus. What do you mean? Why the way? Why? That's an interesting way, <laughs> sorry, but it's an interesting manner in which to describe Jesus. You would never, if, if, you're, if you're giving a, your testimony or to someone and you say, your co-worker, and you say, you know, I believe the way. You, all of us, like, we have to say the name of Jesus, right? We have to be specific. It's not just a way, but Paul is saying the way. I believed in the way. What is he specifically talking about? This phraseology, Paul is specifically addressing that Jesus is the way to salvation. That there is no other way. He is the only way. The only way to be transferred from darkness into the kingdom of the sun was through Jesus. The only way to be redeemed is through Jesus. The only one who can forgive is Jesus. Jesus is the only way. There aren't many roads that lead to heaven. There's only one, and few find it. If you are here today in Christ, praise be to His name. Because if it weren't for God, if it weren't for Jesus, you'd be on the other road. That is why we sing. That is why we enjoy what, why we sing. And, and the words and the expression, this, this adoration, because He is the one that found us. He is the one that transferred us from this road of destruction into this, into this road, this path, unto life. Jesus is the way to eternal life. Whenever you see a U-turn, you think about, you connect, and it's like, wow, that's a U-turn. No, that's exactly what's required of anyone that doesn't know Christ. To make that U-turn in life. To turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. You ever seen a dead end? How are dead ends? Frustrating, aren't they? You, especially Miami. Because you, you go into things and next thing you know, you find out yourself in a cul-de-sac. 
at least I'm from Chicago and, and all the roads pretty much, you, you have a road, they might have one ways or whatever, but you're going to find some alley or anything. You're, you're going to get to the area. But here in Miami was one of the most frustrating things when I moved down here is that you go into this, there's a place, there's a terrace, there's a, uh, any, any, just give me a street. Give me an avenue. No, it's got to be like 20 different names. And it was frustrating because sometimes you go and it's like, okay, I, I know I'm going east, so if I take this road, technically it should take me all the way there. Nope, dead end. But that's, that's exactly, if we're not in Christ, be careful. Because you might find yourself in a dead end, literally. An eternal death. That's why it's so important that Jesus is the only way. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your good works. Don't trust in you coming to church and doing devotional with your family and, and doing all these things because guess what? On that day, it won't matter. Yes, you're honoring the Lord. I'm not saying that it has no significance, but it has no significance unto salvation. That's what I'm saying. It has no significance unto salvation. So make sure that you are found in Jesus. There is no other way apart from Jesus to God. And so not only is Paul confessing that he believes in the way, but then he makes this interesting disclaimer that there's a foundation. This foundation that Paul has built his faith upon. He doesn't reject the law. He doesn't reject the Old Testament. He doesn't reject the prophets. On the contrary, look what he says. He says, I believe in the God. The God of who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Rahab even. These are all the people that he says, I believe in this God. This is my foundation, the God of our fathers. I haven't changed course. I haven't deviated. And then he continues, says the law. I believe in the law. Because what does the law do? The law points to our iniquity. The law points to the fact that I need a Savior, that you need a Savior, that your sin will be punished. Sin has to be punished. A holy God cannot go ahead and turn his blind eye to sin. He can't. That is why he took it out on Jesus. So you have to know the law. And Paul is saying, I don't reject the law. Even Jesus, what did he do? He didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And then he says the prophets. Why the prophets? Because they were always the ones pointing Israel to Jesus. Every sacrifice, everything that, that, the, that the Old Testament, that we had to fulfill to be forgiven our iniquity, was always a point, always reminding us, there's one to come. The Messiah is coming. The one that God promised to Abraham, right when Abraham was about to drive that stake through his son. I will provide. That is who we're seeing. And that is who Paul is saying, that's who I believe. That is, this is what I believe in. And for us, it's, it's, it's important. This is why I, I mentioned it before, and, and this is not to, you know, um, pat my back, but in the sense, or, or hear it in, in Cornerstone. But we have a 1689 confession. I know there's churches that have statement of faiths. That's fine. But we're not making this up. 
We believe in those, we believe in what others, generations have, have believed through the years. That's the blessing of, uh, uh, that's why we're a, a confessional church. Because anybody can go ahead and write a couple of tenets of, yeah, I believe God, I can believe in the Trinity, I believe in all this. That's great. But how do you practice it? How do you believe? How does, how does all this play out in the life of your local church? And this is where we, the, the, the 1689 for us, the London Baptist Confession is so important and, and so uh, pivotal for us. Because it shows us that objective truth remains truth, regardless of the year that you may find yourself on a timeline. Truth, objective truth, not your truth, not your neighbor's truth, not your professor's truth. Truth doesn't change. Objective truth does not change, regardless of the generation, regardless of the year that you may find yourself in. It will remain to be true for my children and my children's children and their children's children and so on and so forth. Because that is what Scripture says. Jesus is our truth. And then the day of resurrection. The day of resurrection, it's coming. And Paul is not calling back. He's actually, he's not alone in believing that. As a matter of fact, Paul says, these guys believe the same thing, by the way, Felix. They believe it. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. We saw that a couple of chapters ago. So they're believing the, the resurrection. It's not that they don't believe it. But Paul says this interesting phraseology. He says, the just, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase to use because you don't find it often in, in, in the New Testament. You find the resurrection of the just, of the righteous. But what do you mean the unjust are also going to resurrect? What does that mean? Are they also going to go to heaven? What Paul is talking about here in the context is the resurrection of the dead. dead the dead will be raised from their tombs. John, in his gospel, writes about this. There will be a resurrection of the dead. There will be a resurrection of judgment. So we have to understand what Paul is actually saying. Not everyone is going to heaven. Not everyone is going to heaven. That is something we need to understand. And Paul is really going to get into that here in a couple of verses, which I'll address. So I ask you, pay attention. If you're one sitting here this morning thinking, I have time. I have time. Pay attention. Listen to what Paul says here in a couple of verses. But in verse 16, before we get there, Paul talks about this thing called a clear conscience. He says, he takes pains. He takes pains. We don't, we don't use that terminology, we don't use that phrase, but we use other things. You know, we, we strive. We work diligently toward. We labor toward. And what Luke is trying to convey here is that Paul literally strives, he practices, he disciplines, he's diligent in having a clear conscience. Before God and man. He wants to remain blameless. This is the kind of man that Paul was. I want to be able to lay my head on my pillow at night with a clear conscience before God. I don't want to have these things hanging over my head. 
If I sinned, I repent. There's grace. There's forgiveness. But you always want to strive. That's why we say here, I'm no one. I, as a pastor, I'm no one. And no teacher up here or anyone or any person in, in leadership has the right to bind your conscience. That's what God has given to you. You understand the Scriptures. It is your job to be diligent in searching the Scriptures. It is your responsibility as a believer to read the Scriptures and say, how does this apply? Lord, help me to apply this to my life. We'll teach it from the pulpit, but you have to apply it. I can't apply it for you. So how do you deal with this? Strive to have a clear conscience before God and man. Oh, and it's not just only God. Paul actually includes and man. Your neighbors. Your children. Your spouse. It's not just, oh, but God knows. Mm -mm. doesn't work. Have a clear conscience before us. Strive, labor in that. And it's hard. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I disqualify myself. Paul was very, very big on, I need to put my body under control. In other words, I have to be led by the Spirit. Not by my passions. Not by the things that I want to be led by. But by the Spirit. So we strive to have those things in place. We want to lock arms here with our people, with, with those in the congregation that the Lord has given you. And sometimes we think, well, if it isn't sin, then it's okay. No. It's, that's not the way it works. I've always, I use this example frequently. Young people, you know, like, oh yeah, well, or the people that are looking for uh, a significant other. I'm single, so I, you know, all I need is just the other person to be a Christian. That's the only requirement. No. It's important that you seek someone else that, yes, at the bare minimum, they have to be a believer. But there's more to that. If the Lord in your, in your being has called you, for instance, to, to missionary work, is that other person going to go ahead and also be on board with you? I always think of Elizabeth Elliot and Jim Elliot. They waited in there, you know, Jim Elliot, the one that went to Ecuador. And he was there, killed with his buddies, to go ahead and preach the gospel. But before getting there, Elizabeth Elliot struggled with that because it was more than just simply, oh, he's a Christian, then it's going to be okay. Jim Elliot knew I was called to this. And if I was called to this, then the, Lord, the woman that the Lord would bring me is also going to be on board with this. So it goes more than have a clear conscience. So we see Paul's case. We see his character. We see the defense that providing the truth, the matter of which the justice that, that, Paul, that Felix should follow, right? After Paul is giving him the truth. But now we see Felix's injustice. And quickly, but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias comes to the tribune, uh, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Just very quick, some points here. Beloved, when Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings, for your rulers, this is what he's talking about. Because they need prayer. They are nothing but men. Sinful men. And this is where we need to go ahead and as people of the Lord, be faithful in praying. Don't just say, I'm going to pray for my leaders. Commit to praying for them. 
regardless of your political affiliation. And that's not just, because uh, I know there's people that listen to our sermon audio and on it. It's not just for the United States. Whether you're looking at Lula or Bolsonaro, whether you're looking at, uh, at um, the, the one in, in Canada, or whether you're looking at someone in Argentina and Magni, I mean, it, it goes all over. Pray for them. Pray for the leaders. Wherever you find yourself, pray for them. Commit to praying for them. Don't make the mistake, which is the next point. Don't make the mistake that Felix made. Don't think that somehow being exposed to truth is the same as believing truth. Felix was very well versed. He had a very, he said, rather accurate knowledge of the way. So Felix wasn't wishy-washy with the way. He had a rather accurate knowledge. Some of you here have a very accurate knowledge of the way. Kids, some of you know the gospel. Meaning you heard it, you can probably repeat it, but you still don't believe it. And that's not just for the kids, that's for anyone here that doesn't know. Some of you have heard it countless times from a loved one, from a co-worker. You've heard the gospel, but you still don't believe it. The question you need to ask yourself, if this is true, why am I rejecting it? If this is true, then why on earth am I rejecting it? That question is so important. Why? Because of verse 25. Because there's a day coming. There is a day that's coming where all of us will have to render an account. It's the final judgment. And that's for everyone. If you're alive, you'll be summoned. If you're dead, you'll be raised out of your tomb. But you will have to be on that judgment day. You'll be present. Now, I always think of this illustration of uh, a couple of weeks, uh, some months ago, you guys probably saw it on social media. This fire that happened in Brickell City Center at the, in the East Hotel is all over social media. <clears throat> and I work in Brickell City Center. And all the time, they're always testing the fire alarms. They're testing all these things. And you're typing away, and some of you know because you work in these buildings. I don't know if they do it, but there they are. You're typing away, and you hear, you know, and they say, please disregard. You know, we're just testing the fire alarm. Well, it turns out that just a couple of months ago, we just happened to go out for lunch with people in the, in the office. And then when we're coming back, we see everybody gathered in the corner right there on Brickell City Center. And I, What's going on? You know, there's this guy that's always dancing. You've probably seen him on social media doing these crazy dances with a loudspeaker on the corner. We're like, oh, probably, you know, tourists taking pictures and videos. No, it was actually a fire on the East Hotel. And we just happened to step out to lunch. We had some co-workers in the building. And we're telling them, hey, get out. This is like, this is not a drill. This is real. We don't know how bad it is, but it's happening. And that is exactly what comes to mind, there's a day when this won't be a drill anymore. Because for all this time, we were there, we were like thinking, kids, you know, you go in these fire drills all the time in school, if you're, if you're in school, all right, everybody go out, you do it over, over, like 12 years of this. Not a single fire. Ah, but you never know. There might be one day, there might be a fire. Spiritually speaking, there will be one day. And it's not a maybe. 
it's a guarantee that that day is coming. And so we need to be very careful because that question, if this is true, then why am I rejecting it? You need to make peace with God through Jesus. There's no other way. Paul discussed it, and this is my conclusion. Look how Paul ends. He's giving him, this is, this is what I believe. This is my confession. I believe in the way. I believe in the God of, my, of, of our fathers. I believe in the prophets. I believe in the law. But then he says in the, in the last couple of verses, I'm trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. I'm only trusting in the righteousness of Christ. I'm not trusting in my own works. Who are you trusting in? Believer, I know you're like, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus. Are you? Because it's very easy to go ahead and say, I'm trusting in Jesus. And then you find yourself on the other end of the pendulum. Those lines become blurred. We were talking about this with some brothers uh, yesterday. We start pushing those boundaries. And next thing you know, what the Lord had given you, you're off in left field somewhere. Alone. So we have to be careful. Not just believers or unbelievers. All of us. Careful. Be careful that you don't believe the, tie, uh, uh, the lie of telling yourself, I got this. If at some level you're saying something similar to that on that day, you're in trouble. In serious trouble. Be careful. Deal with it now while you can. Today is a day of salvation is what Scripture says. Come to Christ. He is the only answer, the only door, the only road, the only way to eternal life is through Jesus, period. There's no other way. And it's not to temporary life. It's unto eternal life. But just like there's eternal life, the opposite is also equally true. There will be eternal death, eternal separation from God. Be careful. And if you do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Praise the Lord for that. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to tell you otherwise, other than keep trusting in Him. And when you fall, because you will, remember His grace. I was talking with a brother this past week. Remember Zephaniah 3.17. He still rejoices over you. He still sings over His people. That is exactly what unconditional love is. That knowing him in his omniscience, knowing that you were going to sin the way you did, still loves you. That is the hope that you have in Christ. That Christ loves you, no matter what. Keep looking to his son. And when you fall, your father will be there to pick you up. Because that's the kind of father that he is. He's not a father that kicks you when you're down. One that picks you up. The enemy does the other part of accusing you. He's the one that beats you and kicks you when you're down. But the Lord is there to remind you. But make sure that you're anchored in Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we, we commit all this to you. We desire to honor you in all things. We know that we're still being sanctified. And we struggle sometimes with our sanctification process because we wish that it was just one and done. And many of us hate seeing the, the ugliness that comes from our hearts. And some of us hate 
the smell that comes, the smell of sin. But thank you. Thank you that we have Jesus. That He alone, that we can look to Him and know that we're forgiven. Know that you don't view us with all our sins, but that one day we will be given robes of righteousness. Pure, white, spotless. And that robe is reserved for those that trust in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that your people would continue looking to him. They would continue keeping their eyes on him. That no matter what this week brings, whatever trial, whatever test, to keep their eyes on Jesus. And Father, for anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that they would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Not to please anyone, but to truly answer the question, where will I be when I die? I pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would use this, not my words, but your word, your scriptures, that you would apply it to the heart of your people and those that don't know you, that they would be convicted, all of us would be convicted of sin, that we would take the, that we would truly be honest and genuine in searching our hearts before you and remembering, Lord, that even when we fail, you are still faithful. Help us as we strive in our faithfulness to be faithful unto you, but always remembering that there was one always that was faithful for us on our behalf, and that's the Lord Jesus. Help us to hold on to him and be with us now as we look to honor you in what we do in our workplaces, in our schools, in our classes, wherever you may find us, that we would be honoring you in our hearts first and foremost with our actions, with our deeds, and with our thoughts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.